The text this morning is from Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. These are the words of God. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at, this, at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. For, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin, Elizabeth, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for what it represents, what it points to. We thank you for the good news, uh, the, the blessing of the gospel that you've given to men. Father, I pray that we go away from this worship service this morning, understanding a little bit more about it. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this morning, I want to speak to you about angels. I want to talk about angels. One of the more obvious things about the Christmas story, as the scripture records it for us, would be the prevalence of angels in it. There are angels everywhere. There are angels all over the place. The angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah to tell him about the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of the forerunner of the Christ. That's in Luke 1.11. Six months later, Gabriel again appears to Mary to tell her that she will give birth to the son of the highest, that's in the passage we just read, 1, 26 and 27. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream in order to tell him that Mary had not, in fact, been unfaithful to him, Matthew 1, 20. The angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds, and then the entire heavenly host appeared as well. That's in Luke 2, 9 and 2, Luke 2, 13. And then an angel in the form of a star summons the wise men to come to Jerusalem in the first place, and then that same angel, that same star, identifies and picks out the right house in Bethlehem for them. That's in Matthew 2, verse 2, and Matthew 2, verse 10. And Joseph was warned in a dream by an angel to flee down to Egypt in order to escape from Herod's wrath, Matthew 2, 13. In other words, angels all over the place, angels appearing here and there and everywhere. So what's the significance of that uh, of what's the significance of this for us? Now, you might say, well, isn't it obvious? This is a Bible story. There are angels in every Bible story. There's an angel a minute, right? There's, the angels are everywhere. Well, that's actually not uh, true. That's not uh, that actually not the case, and I'm going to touch on that more later. This, this uh, per square inch, this is a lot of angels, right? <laughs> so, Let's consider the text. In the sixth month 
of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel, who had also appeared to Zechariah a few, uh, six months before, came to Mary, who was in Nazareth at that time. That's verse 26. She was betrothed to a man named Joseph, who was of the line of David, verse 27, and it appears important to Luke to point out that he was of the line of David. He greets her, Gabriel greets Mary with a general blessing, but one that was a very high general blessing. Blessed are you among women. It's a very high blessing, verse 28. She was troubled by his greeting, and the King James says that she cast about in her mind trying to figure out what this messenger was talking about. And also, incidentally, many times in Scripture, angels simply appear as men, and it's not immediately evident that, um, that this is an, uh, a celestial uh, being. So she's trying to figure out what this message means. Gabriel reassures her, telling her that she has found favor with God. That's verse 30. He then said she was going to conceive a son, and he would be named Jesus. Verse 31. He was going to be very great. He was going to be the son of the highest, and he was going to inherit the throne of his father, David. The monarchy is going to be restored in him. That's verse 32. He was going to reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom was going to be a never-ending kingdom. Verse 33. Now this is obviously, by this point, this is not a guy off the street just telling you random things. This is someone speaking in a prophetic way. This child is going to be remarkable. He's going to be very great. Mary asks, reasonably enough, how this was possible, given that she was a virgin. Verse 34, Gabriel answered her that it would be because the Holy Spirit would come upon her, that the power of the highest would cover her, such that her son would be called the Son of God. Verse 35. Now here we have to distinguish, and I think we should be careful to distinguish, uh, the eternal sonship of the second person of the Trinity from the incarnate sonship of of the Messiah, which was the result of the virgin birth. Christ is the Son of God, in other words, in two different senses. In the Gospel of John, where it says that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father, that is, uh, I, I think, a, I take it as a technical theological term, he's the monogenes, the only begotten. The only begotten Son of the Father, that is the way God is from all eternity, independent of whether the creation had ever happened, independent of the incarnation. The Father is eternally the Father, independent of the incarnation. He's the Father of the Son. So the Son is the eternal Son of God, the eternal Logos of God. That is the Son within the triune reality. But it says here in Luke that he's going to be called the Son of God because of how he was conceived in the womb of Mary. This is talking about an incarnate sonship. So Jesus is the Son of God in two different senses. He will be called the Son of God in, incarnate because he was born of a virgin and it was a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit that brought it about. But he's also the eternal Son of God. Now as we consider this story, I want to give you just, uh, just a few random observations that might help fill in some of the background or some of the cracks uh, in this. In this passage, in verse um, 36, it says that Elizabeth is called Mary's cousin. In the, K in the KJV, Elizabeth is called Mary's cousin, but the word might better be rendered as kinswoman, relative 
or kinswoman. This is interesting because Elizabeth and Zechariah were both from the tribe of Levi. Both Elizabeth and Zechariah were of the tribe of Levi. But the Lord was born of the line of Judah. So the Lord is a, a member of the tribe of Judah. Um, Elizabeth and Zechariah are of the tribe of Levi. And Mary is related to Elizabeth, it says. There, now, there, there are different ways that this could work. It's not a contradiction. But it's suggestive of various possibilities. Because Elizabeth is elderly, the, the, the remarkable thing about her conception, which the, even the angel uh, mentions, even Gabriel mentions, is the fact that she's conceived in her old age. Because she's old and Mary was not, Mary is a handmaiden of the Lord, Mary is young, Elizabeth is old, I think it is likely that she was something like Mary's aunt, and that could happen if Elizabeth or Zechariah's sister had married into the line of Judah, something like that. But we don't know for sure. All we know is that Elizabeth is related to Mary, and they are members of different tribes. Second, generally speaking, in the Old Testament, there are two exceptions, and they're the same two exceptions that we have in the New, angels do not go by their names. They are not named angels usually. In fact, when the father of Samson asks an angel's name, he is rebuffed. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, why askest, why askest thou thus after my name, seeing it, is, seeing it is secret? That's in Judges 13, 18. But in the intertestamental period, it became more common among the Jews to identify angels by, their various, by various names. But still, in the scriptures, in the Old Testament and the New Testament both, we are only given the names of two angels, and those are Michael and Gabriel. Also note here that I'm following our common practice of calling any celestial being an angel. This is, uh, now, and this is a little bit complicated because an angel is one class among all the celestial beings, and it's also a generic term for all of them. It's sort of like calling a a sailor, the kind of sailor that scrubs the decks, a sailor. Um, And then in another context, you might use sailor in a way that includes the admiral. Right? But generally speaking, you don't call the admiral a sailor, not unless you want to be in trouble. <laughs> so, Or here, here's a soldier, meaning a foot soldier, and then you can speak of the entire army as made up of soldiers. So you've got the same sort of thing with the celestial beings. You've got all kinds of different celestial beings. Uh, we have angels, we have archangels, we have seraphim, we have cherubim, we have thrones, dominions, and so on. Uh, It's our common parlance to call all of them angels, and and we understand what we mean by that, but also understand that angel, uh, that a seraph is not, uh, a seraph is not a cherub, a cherub is not an archangel, They, they are different kinds of beings. Cherubim are great winged bulls, um, uh, think of a bull maybe with a, an Assyrian head with a long beard uh, and wings. That's uh, a cherub. Um, a, the Sphinx of Egypt looks sort of like, not a cherub, but it, it's that sort of thing. And then a, a seraph is a great uh, celestial dragon, there, and there's a long story behind that. Then you have archangels, and then you have angels. Now, we can t- refer, the, refer to them all as angels, but keep in mind that there are different classes, different categories, and they're not related to each other the way we are. We are a race, meaning that everybody here is related in some way uh, to 
everybody else here in a way that an, an omnicompetent Ancestry.com could figure out. So it, it might be as far back as Noah, uh, but everybody here is related. We all belong to one race. The angels and the celestial beings were created separately. They, they do not generate the way we generate. Then third, and this is the point that I wanted to build up to, what are we to make of all the angels in the story? Why, uh, why are there angels everywhere? Now remember that the primary job description of angels is that they are messengers. The primary job description of an angel is that he is a messenger. In fact, the word angelos, that is just transliterated into angel. The word angelos means messenger. That's what the word means. And it does not even necessarily entail a celestial being at all. Humans are called angels at various points in scripture, depending on the task they have. So for example, John the Baptist in Mark 1-2, John the Baptist is called an angel. Uh, the, he's the messenger of the Lord. He's He's making the rough places plain. He's, he's uh, filling in the valleys. The, everything is being made level. And by the messenger of the Lord, John the Baptist, who is called there an angel. And the pastors of the seven churches of Asia are also called angels. In Revelation 2.1, 2, 1, uh, verse 8, verse 12, verse 18, and then 3.1, 3.7, and 3.14. So God, the, the Lord Jesus gives a message to the pastor of the church at Ephesus, and he's to deliver that message to the church, making him an angel. So to the angel of the church at Ephesus, this is the message. To the angel of the church at Smyrna, here is the message. And even the verb for preaching the gospel, the verb for preaching the gospel is euangelio, and the middle of that word is angelio, the, the message. So to preach the good message is to preach the gospel. So it has to do with the message. And the, the noun, uh, euangelion, the gospel, is the good news, the good message, the, the gospel. So angels are messengers. Angels are messengers. That's, that is what the, and that's what they're doing here. Now throughout scripture, and we have to, get, we have to disentangle this, throughout scripture, angels do a lot of remarkable things. They work wonders. They perform miracles. But they are not called wonder workers. So it doesn't say, and a wonder worker of the Lord appeared. It doesn't say, and a miracle worker of the Lord appeared. It doesn't say, and one capable of performing astounding signs appeared. It says, an angel, a messenger appears. And then it happens that these angels frequently do uh, remarkable things, uh, supernatural acts, miracles. But they're still called messengers. The signs that they give are the seal on the message. The signs that they give are the seal on the message. As Paul says in Corinthians, the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and various miracles, were done among you with great perseverance. In other words, we have the, we have the apostolic message, here is the message, and here is the authenticating sign that this message is genuine. So the signs that they give are the seal on the message, but the message is the important thing. The message is the central thing. The contents of their message are the important thing. The seal on the letter simply says that the message is authentic. Imagine that you received a message in Bible times from a great king, and you received the scroll, and the scroll was rolled up, and the message inside was of huge importance. Then there's a seal on the outside of that scroll, and the king's signet ring is pressed into the wax of that seal. 
Now, when you look at the seal, that seal is itself a message. So you have a message, a message on the outside about the message on the inside. You look at the seal, and the first message you get is that this is a genuine message from the king. This is authentic. This is the real deal. That's the first message you get. You look at the sign, and then you say, so I wonder what he has to say to me, and you go on to find out what the message is. But there are people who just want to look at the seal. They just, they just want to traffic in wax, right? That's how Herod was. When Jesus was arrested and then brought before Herod, Herod was all whizzed up. He was all excited because he wanted to see a miracle. He'd heard that Jesus does these remarkable things, and he wanted to see one. He wanted, to, he wanted Jesus to do a little trick for him, and then he, Herod, would be able to say, whoa, that was something. That was a, how'd you do that? All right, that's someone who is just looking at the seal and doesn't know that the seal is a seal for a letter. The seal is something that authenticates a message, right? And that's why Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. If you look for a sign, if you're looking for miracles, if you're chasing miracles, what you're doing is you're limiting yourself to the wax on the seal outside the letter and then not bothering to read the letter not bothering to consider what the message is. So this is how Jesus talks in John 10, verse 38. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So Jesus says, if, you're not, if you don't believe me when I'm talking to you, at least you should pay attention to the seal and what the seal means. Believe the works, believe the miracles. But believe the miracles in the right way where you break the seal and then go on to the message. Go on to contemplate what God wants to tell you. It's the same way with the prophets throughout the Old Testament. It's the same way with the prophets. Foretelling the future, when we think, oh, he's a prophet, he's a true prophet, we almost instantly gravitate to the fact that he can tell the future. He's foretelling the future. That's what a prophet does. Well, that's not the main thing that a prophet does. That's not the main vocation. That's not the main calling of a prophet. Foretelling the future was simply their authentication that they were a true prophet. And that's why you should listen to the real message, the central message that they were about to deliver to the king, which was that he was in sin. <laughs> and, and of course, not surprisingly, people didn't like that part of the, you know, they, they didn't like that part. They wanted to say, oh, uh, look at this remarkable uh, uh, for telling of the future they did. For telling the future is not the main vocation of a prophet. That's simply their authentication for what was their main purpose, which was forthtelling. Right, the prophet is a he is forthtelling the truth. He's forthtelling the truth. He brings a covenant lawsuit against Israel, for example, or he brings a message to someone. This is what you are to do. This is what you uh, I've given to you. Now, how can I know? How can I know this? Well, the he then would tell the future frequently, foretell the future in a way that would uh, validate who he was. So it, we see this in Deuteronomy 18. And if thou say in thine heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? In other words, how can we identify false prophets? How can we identify false prophets when he says, this is what God wants you to do? How can I tell if he's a false prophet? When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord... If the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken, but the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, 
thou shalt not be afraid of him. In other words, he, he told the future, if the thing he said didn't come to pass, you were to disregard what the prophet said. You didn't need to pay any attention to what he said you were supposed to do. It, this was his authentication. Or Isaiah does something similar in Isaiah 41, 23. He says, taunting the false gods, he says, show the things that are to come hereafter. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that ye are gods. How can we know that you're gods? How can, how can we know that you're speaking from the supernatural, from the spiritual realm? Well, tell us the things that are to come hereafter. Not because that's the main thing, but because that's the seal. That's the authenticating thing. Yea, do good or do evil that we may be dismayed and behold it together. So the main thing is to believe the message as Mary did and Zechariah did not. The main thing is to believe the message. Mary simply receives what Gabriel says. Now, uh, Mary asks the question, how can this be since I'm a virgin? But this is simply asking, how is, you know, how is this going to happen? And Zechariah says, how can, I, how can we know how can I know that what you're talking about is true? Zechariah appears to be testing Gabriel a little bit more, which is why he is chastised by not being able to speak until the birth of his son. And Mary's not chastised at all. She says, uh, may it happen to me according to your word. She is completely uh, submissive. Now, it's, if you just take the words of Mary and the words of Zechariah, Mary's words could be... Uh, said in an impudent, unbelieving way, but Mary doesn't do that. And Zachariah's words could be said in a submissive way, but apparently that's not what happened either, or at least Gabriel didn't think so. And, and, and him being the angel on the scene, we will give it to him. The main thing is to believe the message. The main thing is to believe the message which um, we are called to do. Now, it's noteworthy... It's noteworthy that in Scripture, there are three great periods of clustered miracles. The time of Moses, the time of Elijah and Elisha, and the time of Christ and the apostles. Now, I said earlier that we sometimes think that there's, in Scripture, there's a miracle a minute. There's, there's always somebody doing something. You turn around and someone's walking on water and then someone's, you know. But that's because we oftentimes focus on these great clusters. Moses delivers the people from Egypt, and there's a whole, there's a frenzy of miracles raining down destruction on Egypt and then dividing the Red Sea and destroying, destroying Pharaoh's army and then bread from heaven in the wilderness. So Moses, but Moses gave them the Pentateuch. Moses gave them the Torah. Moses gives them the first five books of the Bible. In other words, God gave them very important messages, and he authenticated the, the, those letters, that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, had a seal on it. They knew that Moses was from God. They knew that Moses was, was from God because the, the seal was authentic. Also, incidentally, people can then take something like the, the, the books of Moses and hold them for centuries and then start following them for the wrong reason. In other words, they, they say, well, as the Jews... Um, said in their conflict with Stephen in the book of Acts, well, we know, we know that God spoke through Moses, but this guy, this guy's just a schlub deacon in the Christian church in this heretical thing. Well, how'd they know that Moses was from God? Well, he did great miracles. What was Stephen doing? Great miracles. He was doing miracles in the streets of Jerusalem right in front of them. And what did Moses look like when he came down off the mountain? Well, his face was radiant. His face was shining. 
What was Stephen like right before they uh, stoned him? Well, his his face was shining like the face of an angel. So Stephen, Stephen had the same authentication. Stephen had the same papers that Moses had. And they were killing him in the name of Moses. All right, so, uh, so Moses is a period of revelation, and there are authenticating miracles that cluster around that time. And then Elijah and Elisha inaugurate the great period of the prophets. It doesn't encompass the entire period of the prophets, but Elijah and Elisha are noteworthy for their miracles, and they inaugurate the period of the prophets. That's another great cluster of miracles. Then, of course, the time of the New Covenant, the, the time of Christ. Christ does all these miracles, and then his apostles do the same. These miracles, we should note that the, these miracles, because we are bent on accepting the message that they authenticate, whether the law or the prophets or the gospel. God, does, If someone walks up to you and says, I'm a messenger from God, and you have to believe exactly what I say if you want to go to heaven, um, as Christopher Hitchens once said, if someone says that to you on the subway, do you scoot closer or farther away? <laughs> well, gen- generally, you would say you scoot farther away because this guy is probably a nut job unless you saw him walk on water, unless you saw him feed the 5,000, unless you saw him raise the dead, unless you saw those things, those are the seal. But then there's a possible, a possible way of getting that wrong too, of being so wowed by the seal that you just focus on that and become part of the wicked and adulterous generation. So the angels in the sky who declared the message to astonished shepherds were messengers. And they, they did this remarkable thing. They declared the message to astonished shepherds. The shepherds declared the message to astonished passers-by. And this is a metaphor that can indicate to us how that particular torch has been passed from angels to men. We have been promoted, and we are now God's messengers. We have been promoted. We are now God's angels. What do I mean? Well, it says in Hebrews 2, he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. In the Old Testament, there was a, here's a basic, a very rudimentary uh, cosmology here, but in the Old Testament is God and then angelic uh, rulers right, over uh, different nations had different angelic powers, some of them fallen, some of them not. Uh, so God, then angels, and then man. God, angels, man. In the time of the New Covenant, it's God, man in Christ, angels. Right, there's, been a, there's been a cosmological revolution because of Bethlehem, because Christ, the, the eternal Son of God, became a man. All right? He went below the angels. He was made a little, man is a little lower than the angels, it says in Hebrews. Christ becomes a man, and then Christ lives a perfect, sinless life. Then he's crucified, then he's buried, then he rises from the dead, and then he ascends into heaven, carrying, burying all of us with him. And at the right hand of the Father, he is given universal dominion over absolutely everything, including the angels. Which is why it says in Hebrews 2.5, he has not put the world to come, the Christian era, he's not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. No, the world has been, that, that world, the old world, has been given to the sons of men, and by being given to the sons of men, it has been transformed through Christ into the new world. 
And this is what Paul means when he's talking about, uh, he's talking about this reality in Galatians 4. In Galatians 4, the first verse, he says something very interesting. He says, uh, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. All right, so in the Old Testament, mankind was like a two-year-old billionaire. A two-year-old billionaire. He's the heir. And the angels are the minimum wage babysitters watching the billionaire. And the billionaire sometimes gets a little haughty and says, I don't have to do what you say. And the minimum wage worker says, oh, yes, you do. Right? So the, the toddler billionaire is in subjection to angels. But he is the heir. He's going to inherit everything. He's going to grow up. And that growing up is made possible in Christ. So uh, we were in subjection to angels in the, old, the time of the Old Testament, but now we have been promoted. In, in the gospel, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and in our inclusion with him, which is what our baptism is, if we're united with him in baptism, we will be united with him in his resurrection, and we are co-crucified, co-buried, co-resurrected, and co-ascended. Man in Christ now outranks the angels. What are angels, it says in Hebrews? They are sent to minister to those who are to inherit eternal salvation. That means we are now the messengers. That means we are now the angels. We are the ones supposed to tell everybody about all of this. So, we've been charged to the central, to, be, to become, to be the central messengers of this gospel promise, which is peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And this is Matthew 28. This is the Great Commission. God, Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Mark to go out and preach the gospel, you and Gelion, right? preach the gospel to every creature. Right? If it's moving, preach the gospel to it. Right? If you, you need to be a messenger. We have the gospel in our mouths. And in the Great Commission in Matthew, it says, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go, disciple the nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. So we are to talk. We are to deliver the message. We are to, we are to deliver the message. My understanding of Matthew 24, 31 is that we are, the, we are the angels being sent out to gather God's elect from the four corners of the world. This doesn't mean that everybody in the Christian church has to consider that they've got the gift of evangelism and you have to be as fruitful evangelistically as someone who's gifted in evangelism. But it does mean that the Christian church is the community of good news. We are the place where good news reigns. And we, we need to be so full of that good news that you can't carry the bucket of the Christian church through a town without a bunch of it slopping out. Right? We, are to, we are to be the kind of people who are so entranced by the good news, that are so captivated by the good news, that we are ready to say Merry Christmas to anybody and tell them what it means, tell them what it's about, tell them, what we're, tell them what's going on. The, uh, you say, but I'm not trained. I'm not, I, I don't have a great apologetics training. Well, neither did the shepherds. The shepherds didn't have that, <laughs> unless, the, unless being sung at by angels in the sky constitutes training. I, I, I suppose that it does. But remember, you've been forgiven. You once were blind, now you see. 
You've been forgiven. You've been washed. You've been cleansed. We know what Christmas is all about. We know what the gospel is all about. And we should be eager on tiptoe, ready to tell people. Why? Because we are angels. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for your kindness to us. I pray that as we meditate on this, that you would give us opportunities in this coming week to talk to people about what it is we're celebrating and why we're so happy about it. I pray, Father, that you would do this because we ask in Jesus' name, him being the one who taught us to pray, saying, One of the things that God is teaching us at this table is that everything belongs to Christ. We are not disembodied brains. We are embodied souls. All of creation is God's good gift. All of creation sings God's praise. All of creation groans in eager expectation of the redemption of the sons of God. All of creation serves Christ as he rules all things, bringing them into subjection under his feet. We see this in the fact that God chose bread and wine as the tokens of the new covenant. This bread was made with grain that was grown in the ground. This wine was made from grapes, also grown from the ground. But not only that, it was grain and grapes harvested by men, then processed, mixed, baked, fermented, even delivered, and prepared here for us this morning. Christ is Lord of it all. And if Christ is Lord of all creation like this, and he is, then we are free to be generous with it, just like he is. God scatters seed. He's not stingy with sunsets. He gives trees and birds and fish and wildlife like they're going out of style, except they never do. There are warnings of idolatry. Don't worship this creation, but that has never stopped God from overflowing with these good gifts. So let this bread and wine that you receive, proclaiming your forgiveness, drive you to the same kind of generosity in your families and in your neighborhoods. Understood rightly, if God has claimed this bread and wine for our enjoyment, of his salvation as the means by which the death and resurrection of Jesus is being proclaimed week after week, then these are weapons of sorts. They are ammo. But this means that all of creation, in one way or another, is also on our side. The trees proclaim the glory of God and remind us of the ark and the temple and the cross. And the stars remind us that all time belongs to Jesus and points to the angels singing in a star over a stable in Bethlehem. The bears and the cougars and the eagles proclaim the majesty and strength of our God, a strength that forgives all our sins. So if all of creation sings like this, if all of creation groans, then all of creation fights against the darkness of sin and death and the devil with us. Creation groans, but it's on our side. And all of that is just another reason to be generous. What are we giving one another after all? Ammo. What are we filling stockings with? Ammo. New socks, new gadgets, new books, jewelry, toys, candy canes. It all belongs to Jesus. And if it belongs to him, then it serves him. So give and forgive like Christ and come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and gave thanks. So let's give thanks together. Our God and Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he was born. Thank you that he lived. And thank you that he died. And thank you that when he died, he took our sins with him and he crushed them. Father, thank you that Jesus rose and he lives forever. Father, thank you that we have been given that life. And so we thank you.
for this bread and wine. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, you are the angels of God, and some of you might be thinking, oh great. No, it's really good news, it really is. Think about it for just a minute. Think about it in your life. Think back on some of the most significant words that have been said to you over many years. A word of correction, maybe someone sharing the gospel with you in passing, you know, in, in, a, in an airplane or in an airplane terminal or you know, just somewhere random and somebody said something or you heard something or it was a little snippet on the radio and it just clicked and you were greatly encouraged or you were drawn to the Lord and something and you think, you know, so how does that work? Most of the most significant words, I'm convinced, weren't well-planned orations. It was just people loving Jesus everywhere they went and stumbling and bumbling and God gets all the glory. So be encouraged, love Jesus everywhere you go. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessings of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, descend upon you and remain in your heart always. Amen.